This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Gillette Jacobs. Anwar McAfee's background is in the field of education, but he is also an avid photographer, birder and conservationist. Using the power of photography to help more of us understand the beauty and wonders of nature, his photographs also serve as a powerful reminder of all the natural beauty that needs protection in our beloved country as we face the dual crises of biodiversity loss and climate change. So the author of the bilingual bird guidebook, Birds of Tranganu, his portfolio showcases stunning images that inspire conservation and environmental awareness. He joins me now to share more. Welcome, Anwar. How are you today? I'm very well. Thank you very much, Juliet. It's lovely to have you uh, on the show with me today. And I know you've come all the way from Kuala Trungatu <laughs> to come and speak to me. Uh, and so, yes, you know, I did mention, Anwar, you're also the director of the International Centre at the University of Sultan Zainal Abidin. So that's where the education comes. Uh, but you're also a committee member of the Malaysian Nature Society at the Kuala Trunganu branch. And as I mentioned, wildlife photographer, right? So a lot of things there. Many hats. Many, many hats, many cameras. <laughs> so I want to get to the start. Uh, just go back to the start, right? How did you develop? a passion for photography and, you know, how did that go into uh, bird photography? Okay, it's interesting because I have always had a passion for photography. I got my first camera when I was 15 years old. My father was furious with me because I bought a DSLR, which is very expensive and mm. parents are used to buying very cheap cameras. They didn't believe it when I said it cost this much to get the camera. So I've always had a passion for photography and in university, my friends were into nature and and the outdoors and bird watching. So I started to pick up a little bit there. This is back in Canada. Mm. Then I explored my passion for photography and bring it along with me and try and capture pictures of, of the birds that I was seeing. And when I moved to Malaysia, I continued. So they have both grown together, although they're slightly different skills. If you are a bird watcher, you're concentrating on what you're seeing and uh, studying the birds and their habitat and recording on paper, yes. uh, what is happening. But if you're a photographer, you will probably stay put in one area. You'll understand the birds very well and you'll wait for the perfect opportunity to capture the best image. Mm, so okay. bird watchers will move around a lot and uh, be aware of everything happening. Photographers are very focused. Yeah. I do a bit of both. And you sort of, I mean, you can be stationed there for hours, isn't it? I've seen hours. it. I saw on a post recently, someone uh, shared their photograph of a of a, a, a pheasant from Borneo, and they said this was a nine-hour wait for this photograph. Okay. I'm not that patient. I'm not a patient <laughs> photographer. <laughs> but how did you know that? And then that passion also, I want to say, led you to become an advocate for uh, environmental conservation as well, right? I mean, how did that? I mean, was it just a natural progression? It was. It was a natural progression. I went to Tringanu. I moved to Tringanu in 1991. Mm -hmm. I was a teacher there at the university you mentioned, and. Um, I was the only one doing bird watching and the only one recording what I was seeing mm. and uh, starting to share with the Malaysian Nature Society and other organizations what I'm seeing in Tringanu. When I checked the checklist, the, the official list of what species have ever been recorded in Tringanu, which is a, a very valuable item for conservationists and bird watchers. Perhilitan only had around 250 species recorded. And it's not that they're not there. It's that there's no one there 
recording them regularly. Mm -hmm. People that would record would be people maybe from the West Coast that come for three or four days, record in one area, share their findings and go back. I was living there, so I was picking up more and more. Um, So through my work and others who also do this casually, bird watching, we've now brought the list up closer to 500 species for Tringanu. And that's not scientific. That's just like bird watchers, bird photographers seeing things and sharing our observations. Mm -hmm. It's almost like citizen science, isn't it? Yes, it is exactly citizen science. Mm -hmm. And and how, you know, what role do you believe, you know, as a photographer, right, what role do you believe photographers play in sort of larger conservation, uh, the larger conservation effort, right? Especially, you know, uh, for preserving bird species in their habitats uh, in, in, I guess, Kuala Trangganu, but Malaysia as well. Well, you know the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm -hmm. So when we have a photograph of something, it can have an impact on many people and it can have a greater impact than an article or a greater impact than a mere checklist, which are all very important, as I said. So pictures are very powerful. Beautiful pictures are even more powerful. And if you have ever done bird watching, you will know that to people who are passionate about it, a fleeting glimpse of a bird is enough. But to people just getting started, they never catch that fleeting glimpse. They are not able to use the optics well enough, and they don't see everything that the more skilled person sees. So one way to get people to take that first step is through photographs. And I recall when I started birdwatching back in Canada, of course, I'd lived there all my life. I didn't see that many species of birds in the city and around. But my friend, when he would go through the field guide, he would show me sure, all these. Yeah. And I said, no, there's no way these birds are here. I've never seen them. And then when you stop and you look even in the city, oh, my goodness, this is so colorful. Oh, I've never seen that before. So you become suddenly aware of the great diversity that's mm-hmm. all around you. And sometimes it's even the sounds, right? You've heard it, but you didn't realize, ah, it's that bird making it. And then when you look closer, then you see, oh, my goodness, what is this beauty like right here uh, in our city, right? Exactly. And, you know, uh, you can bird watch without your eyes. You can bird watch with your ears, Mm -hmm. especially in the forest. You don't get the glimpses because the forest is so dense and dark. So as you walk through the forest edge, uh, you will hear 90% of what you will encounter and you will only see 10%. So learning the calls, being aware of the calls, you know, you can be a magician. <laughs> I recall taking a group of uh, school uh, school kids out and I could hear a black hornbill, which has the worst call of any hornbill. It's okay. a horrific call uh, around the corner. Of course, they don't hear it. They just hear all this noise in the forest. They, they don't discern that one species. But I hear it. So I say to them, when we turn the corner, there's going to be this species sitting on a tree. We turn the corner and there it is. Wow. It's not magic, of course. It's just paying attention to what's in your environment. And how did you hone those skills, right, of, you know, learning the different bird calls? You know, and like you said, I mean, 500 species easily, right? How did you improve your knowledge and all of that? Okay, I describe myself as a lazy birder. (laughs) I am not like the guy that can go out for nine hours to wait for one photograph. So I bird in my area. That's number one. I don't travel too far for birding, but I explore my area as thoroughly as I can. Mm. And I pick up 
looking at new species, finding them in the field guide, I pick that up slowly over time. I have not memorized or mastered everything. And then when I see it in the wild, oh, I know what it is. So I explore bit by bit. The same with the calls. And we have uh, some fantastic software from Cornell University now. Uh, that uses artificial intelligence to compare a recording of a bird call you might take in the forests here in Malaysia and match it to what it suggests might be the species you're hearing. Its accuracy is not perfect yet, but go back just a few years, it didn't exist. You could not match calls. Okay. And there's other software that will match photographs. And there's one that they have, which I've used with students. Uh, they see a bird in the field, I ask them what it is. You know, they'll never find it in the field guide. It's too confusing. So we go through, I believe it's just three or four questions. That's all they ask you. What size is it approximately? Where was it located approximately? Is it a ground bird in the tree? Just a few questions. And then it will give you maybe 10 photographs of what it may suggest. Mm -hmm. And invariably, it's one of those photographs. Okay. So it really helps beginners identify. Mm -hmm. We didn't have those tools. We had field guides. The first field guide I brought here was done in 1975 by Ben King. Half of the plates, half of the photographs or the drawings were black and white. <laughs> I could not tell one <laughs> woodpecker from the other in there. They right. all looked the same to me. Yeah. So it's really a slow, long process for me. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I mean, there is so, there are so many resources. Now, and again, you know, I would want to say fueled a lot by uh, conservation as uh, by uh, citizen scientists as well, right? Because now scientists have, you know, so many eyes and ears out there in the yes. wild, helping them, uh, you know, make those databases as well and making them more accessible yes. as well. And, and those databases are, are working two ways. So I am a big advocate of citizen science. I am by no means the best one at it in Malaysia. There is others that contribute much more information than me. But that citizen science is a two-way stream. It's not just us sharing information that higher-ups can then get a bigger picture of what's happening. People on the ground can look and they'll say, oh, Anwar saw this over here. And then they'll say, oh, a week later, the same rare species was seen somewhere else. This year, something must be happening that there's an invasion of this species of sort. So it's not just that we share the information and no one has access to it. Everyone has access to it and we can learn and see from other people very quickly. It's mm -hmm. very interesting, these times now. Mm, definitely. Uh, let's just go for a quick break. And well, when we come back, I want to talk about, you know, some of the things that you've seen in the field, uh, you know, when you went into the wild. I'm speaking today to Anwar McAfee. He is a committee member of the Malaysian Nature Society for the Kuala Trunganu branch. He's also a wildlife photographer and the director of the International Centre at University Sultan Zainal Abidin. We're talking about, well, his work as a photographer and how he's using that as a conservation tool. We'll continue that discussion after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, all the way from Kuala Trungano, Anwar McAfee. He is a wildlife photographer. He's an avid birder. He's also the committee, a committee member of the Malaysian Nature Society for the Kuala Trungano branch and the director of the International Centre at University Sultan Zainal Abidin. So today we're talking, we're quite nerdy. Lah. Today we want to talk about <laughs> bird watching. We want to talk about how we can use that uh, as a conservation tool. And, uh, you know, as you said before the break, a picture paints a thousand words, right? It can, it's the impact it has 
because I mean I think we all know right the the turtle with the straw up its nose right yes. you know the yes. seahorse with the with the cotton bud right you you know conservationists can talk for hours about it but that one image very powerful very, very powerful. powerful and you know folks he is also the author of a bilingual bird guidebook called Birds of Trunganu stunning images I've only seen some pictures but really beautiful you. and you know Thank you put you. some of them on Facebook folks if you'd like to go and have a look you you do of course uh, focus more in Kuala Trunganu area right yes. uh, where where are some of the places that you like to go bird watching well I said before I'm a lazy birder <laughs> okay I I like sometimes just around my neighborhood, right down by the the coastline. Mm. I really like my campus, which is just on one edge of Kuala Trunganu. It has a wetland and fields. Nice. It's a protected area in the sense it's not a housing development. And so the birds feel that there's a quietness there. They can go and they can rest. So we have, I believe it's a little over 130 species recorded just on our, our campus. Nice. Um, and then if you go a little bit further afield, we have agricultural areas just on the north of Kuala Tringanu. It's The area is called Baturakit, mm-hmm. and they are basically old growth orchards. So rambutan, oh. durian, but these trees are 100 years old or more, and it's like a secondary forest. And so there are lots of things in there, including hornbills. I like to go there because it's it's... It's easy. It's not far. And then, of course, I like Tasik Kenyir mm. because Tasik Kenyir is a very uh, large section of forest. And in fact, if we're talking about conservation now, it has been the bird watching, the checklist for Kenyir, the, the books that have been published, the information. The word has gotten out. And that information has been able to contribute to conservation directly. So the state government has set aside the Kinnear State Park, which is 30,000 hectares. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not that birding was the only thing that the the government responded to. No, there were many other NGOs and many other uh, uh, scholars that contributed a vast amount of information to say this deserves protection. But one parcel was certainly the bird checklist, the bird photographs, the information. Mm -hmm. So we managed to do that. We uh, also were involved in the Kenyir Geopark, Mm -hmm. which was recently declared this year. Again, we are not the vanguard and the reason that it happened, but we're part of it and we contributed and we were valuable. And uh, there are uh, international designations known as IBAs, International Bird and Bio, uh, Important Bird and Biodiversity Areas. Malaysia has a significant number, but Tringanu has only one at the moment, and that is Tamandagara Tringanu. So we, using the bird checklist, because that is one of the criteria, have proposed several other IBAs through the Malaysian Nature Society. So we've we've passed. The, the litmus test, yes, we meet all the criteria. It's just a process now. Hopefully, we'll, we will have some IBAs, additional IBAs in Tringanu soon. Mm-hmm. Success story right there, isn't there, it? It is yeah. a little bit, yes. When yeah. we think about it, it is. No, it is. It truly is. Uh, and, you know, from all the different bird species that you've uh, documented, right, uh, any of them perhaps that currently facing critical conservation challenges, anything like that? Well, the one that comes to mind would be the critically endangered helmeted hornbill. Mm-hmm. So we have 10 species of hornbills in Malaysia. We have nine in Tringanu and we have eight in Sabah and Sarawak. Many people, when I give my talks, where is the best place for hornbills? They'll always say Sarawak or Bonier. But actually, Tringanu is a very good place, especially Tasik Kenyir. We have nine species, relatively easy to see. And for the past few years, I've been working with the Malaysian Nature Society and 
BirdLife International to identify territories of this critically endangered bird. And so far, we've located two active nests that we keep track of. And uh, there, it is very difficult to bring people and show them nests because you can disrupt things. But if you take photographs or video, you can share that and that becomes very powerful. Mm-hmm. And we know their cry is one of a kind as well. Oh, yes. Also, uh, <laughs> it, like the black hornbill, not something you want as a ringtone. No, but, you know, so distinct and you hear it and you're like, oh my God, you know, really stunning, stunning things. And I, I also want to talk about, you know, sort of responsible uh, photography, right? So how, how do you approach capturing these photographs, right? But also ensuring that, you know, your photography practices are sustainable and they minimize disturbance to the birds and the habitats? Yeah, that's very important. There are a series of protocols that bird photographers and bird watchers are supposed to follow. Birds come first. And uh, when you go out and do photography on your own, you really don't often have an impact on the birds because you're by yourself. But when two or three people join you, the impact is higher. And then we know in large areas like Kuala Lumpur, where there are many bird photographers, if there's something exciting, there will be many uh, people around. That will definitely have an impact. The more, it used to be the more, the merrier. Mm -hmm. So I'm entering a new, there aren't many bird photographers. There are a few that will come from the West Coast. So we haven't had any serious issues, but in other parts of the country, other parts of the world, we, we can see that. So I have not come to the point where, oh, we have to, uh, you know, uh, pay attention to this or that. But there are some areas in Kenya that, that are very good for photography. And I've noticed now that more and more people are picking up on going to those areas. So we will have to start to see how can we reduce the impact that they may be having on the wildlife. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I keep mentioning how beautiful your shots are, right? I mean, the few that I've managed to see. Um, how do you actually approach capturing, you know, they do have unique personalities, right? Yes, the birds. Yes. How do you approach that, you know, for all the different uh, bird species in your photos? Well, one facet is you need to know the wildlife. You need to know that bird species and the way it works the way it perhaps thinks or acts so that you can pick up on its cues and know what will happen next or where it's going to come to, how long it will stay. So as you build up more knowledge, you get better opportunities to take better pictures. Um, I, for the third time, am a lazy uh, bird watcher. So when I go out birding, I will bring my camera and if an opportunity presents itself, I will take photographs. And I have done a calculation that for every trip I do, I probably get one or two good photographs out of the many that I will take or the many opportunities. And so the more you do, the more you build up. I don't often stake out an area, but if we have a fruiting tree that has good views around it, definitely I will plan to be there because your chances of getting many good photographs in one day Mm -hmm. are there. And if you have a nesting bird, if you want to record the activities at the, the nest, which I do for hornbills because it contributes to conservation and it generates interest. So I will know that I will have to go back to this one location and then you know, oh, at what time the bird is going to come approximately. And we can share it with people that are decision makers. Decision makers are not easy to get out into the the forest, but if you can say, if you come with me on Wednesday, we'll start here at 8. And sure enough, you arrive and by 8.30, you've got some exciting activity, Mm. uh, which we can predict, but to them is amazing. It has an impact. It has an impact. 
Okay. And in terms of challenges, you know, have you encountered any while trying to to capture these images, but also to convey, you know, environmental messages through your photography? Well, I've been very fortunate. There are there are people in Tringanu that that pay attention to conservation and provide me with an opportunity to share my passion for birds and bird photography. Uh, at events that are organized for the public. So there's one we call Kinnear Bird and Nature Quest that we organize with the state government and other interested parties uh, every year. And that brings in people from around the country to share what wildlife there is out at Kinnear because people were still trying to promote not the houseboat side of things, but more like the natural side of things to make people more aware, to give them an opportunity to explore the forest a little bit from a conservation mindset and uh, to push the agenda with state government people that this area deserves protecting. It's not a great place for continuous logging. Although I will say sustainable logging is a reality and if it's done properly, it's a natural resource that that we cannot stop using. Mm. Uh, But we need to be aware of areas that maybe should be protected and uh, we are slowly winning that or passing on that message and getting places. Okay. My next question, actually, I think you've already answered it. I was going to ask for success stories where your photographs has actually directly contributed to uh, positive conservation outcomes. So I think, you know, uh, what you mentioned earlier is that. But any others that you'd like to highlight for us? uh, It's hard to talk about success and things. But um, I guess a new area would be what you mentioned earlier, citizen science. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we realize what we are doing is citizen science. I'm not an ornithologist. I don't study the bones of the bird and things. I just appreciate them in the wild. So by compiling information, sharing it with others in the database like eBird on Facebook to generate interest. Um, I've moved that one more step recently with the university, UNISA, where I work, and I've put together a program called Citizen Science. Lovely. Okay. And the idea is just to get people interested in the fact that you don't have to be a scientist to be interested in science. And there are many things that you can do. There's iNaturalist, which is an application, and you can talk about anything or find out information about anything. But because my interest is birds, then we'll narrow it down. Our citizen science will use avifauna as the direction that we will go. And we have it set up for just one day, you know, just touch bases with it and see if you're interested. Uh, Three days where you get a little bit more in depth and you learn about the software that you can use and you learn some field graph. Or you can go up to two weeks and then we get to explore the tropical rainforest. We get to explore the habitat in the wetlands. Mm -hmm. We can go out to the islands because the birds are different there. So they get a sense that, oh, different habitat, different wildlife. They get a increased proficiency in field craft. They get to explore some of the databases and networks that exist online and in books, Mm. AI tools, and then we leave it at that because we're not heavy-duty science things. So I've done that at the university, and I I hope that will be of interest to people that are maybe just looking to get started. Mm. Maybe one success story that just came to light the other day, we at the university have uh, lots of networks overseas. So earlier in the year, we had some research centers from Japan come, and I told the management, well, you should not just come to Tringanu and do research. Let's go out to Kinnear for the day and we'll do bird watching. So I brought the group out 
And I, I heard at a meeting in our Senate a few months ago, one of the professors said, oh, Anwar, we had another follow-up meeting with the Japanese and a consortium from around the world. And the Japanese could not stop talking about their day in the field. Oh, wonderful. And then I got an email from the faculty uh, just a few days ago saying, oh, two of the Japanese are coming back next month and they've taken up a new hobby, bird watching, and they want you to <laughs> go out with them again to Kinyir. So that small success... It's a good success. It's a good success. And, you know, the more we build, the more we have in our army, right? Yes. You know, no, yes. to promote uh, conservation. And any memorable or challenging experiences of taking pictures of birds in the wild? Any any interesting stories, maybe? Well, I don't think I have any interesting stories about that. There are sad stories. I drive oh. all the way out to Kinyir and the memory card is somewhere back home in a okay. card reader. Okay. That, has, that has happened. Have a checklist always. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have a checklist of the birds, but not a personal checklist of the <laughs> items to bring. Um, I have started over the past two years, uh, especially when I was doing the helmeted hornbill surveys, I started to use a drone. Okay. All right. And the drone photography there is very interesting because it is it has helped us immensely. You can imagine when you're in the forest, you're at ground level and you've got trees towering over you, you will glimpse the wildlife, the bird life as it moves by you or moves above you. But once it's moved out of your frame of view, you can't run after it and find out where it is gone. So we started to use a, a drone. And when we had an active area in the forest, we just put the drone up high, aim the camera down and record. Okay. And then we go back and we look in detail and we start to pick up patterns. This is when we're looking, you know, this is not just a fun observation. So we start to pick up patterns in an area. And that's how I found the first helmeted hornbill nest in Kinyir is by spending a lot of time, but not just seeing what I would see from the roadside on my ground, getting a higher view. Mm. Uh, now, they're not beautiful photographs. It's like a little dot moving. And I say, no, yeah, I followed that from here to A to B to C. The next week I see it the same thing. So you build up a picture. So the drone has been, I guess, a success story. Mm -hmm. We don't get many great photographs or things to share with others because it's usually just little specks on the screen, mm -hmm. but it's very valuable. Mm -hmm. And no, I'm sure the uh, other conservationists and those, you know, scientists and all really value that information because you're tracking patterns, you know, you're giving them uh, data, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes. And uh, continuous data as such. And I was also, you know, because you, you work in Kuala Trunganu a lot, right? Do you engage with the local communities as well? And how do you use all the work that you've been doing to promote conservation uh, efforts related to uh, birds uh, in, in the areas that you work? Yeah, I like this question because definitely it's very important to engage with everyone that's around you. And... Uh, I am an English teacher at the university. I use English a lot. And I see one of the barriers in Malaysia is language when it comes uh -huh. to conservation. Yeah. The Malaysian Nature Society, which is Malaysia's oldest environmental NGO, lots of the work that we do, our meetings, our informal discussions, our sharing, it's all in English, which... Uh, doesn't have an impact on me because that's the language I use. But I realize if I want to communicate to school children, I want to communicate to other adults that don't feel comfortable using English, which can be the case on the East Coast, then Malay has to be one of the mediums. And that's one of the reasons why when I wrote that field guide for the birds of Tringanu, I said, oh, it has to be bilingual because all the other field guides are in English, English, English. They The students like them, but it's a, it's a challenge. It's not that, oh, they can't read English. It's just that it's so much easier if they read it in 
Bahasa. Bahasa. So so I made sure that that one was in Bahasa and English. And in fact, uh, we have translated that into uh, Chinese now. Wonderful. It hasn't been printed yet. It's in the final stages. But we looked, okay, put it in another language as well to Mm -hmm. see how broad we can share that information about Tringanu Mm -hmm. bird populations. No, there is a, I mean, there is something that I'm getting for many of the people that I'm speaking to, right? They're also working because everything, you know, conservation messages, you know, uh, messages about climate change, a lot of it's in English. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to reach out to the community, uh, vernacular languages, Bahasa, you know, they're working on producing content in those languages so that, you know, of course, the message, you know, gets spread wider. Isn't yes, it? And yes. And, and I don't think it's a barrier. I mean, it's not that people don't understand English. It's just that there's more comfort in using Correct. their own language. Yes, and that's yes. the best way to to yeah. share these these issues with others. Exactly, exactly. So and I do want to talk about the book as well, right? So, um, t- you know, beautiful book. Um, talk to me about putting it together and, you know, why you wanted to do it and what your hopes were uh, when you published it. Well, I had worked um, a lot with the publication unit at the university. I'm an editor there. And I also work with the uh, Royal Foundation, uh, uh, Sultan Mizan Foundation. And there are people in the Sultan Mizan Foundation interested in conservation. And they had uh, ideas about doing this or doing that. And I thought, no, I think what is really needed is maybe a field guide or an introduction to the birds. At least we can publish the checklist, which other people can use as a resource. At least it's a starting point. And so they agreed to the idea. So we worked together, the Royal Foundation, the university, and we put together the book. And um, I had the idea that it should be in two languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we went ahead with that. It was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I had already a collection of things, but as you're working on it, you find the gaps. Yeah. And so I start to go out and try and capture the photographs of the birds that I'm missing that I think should be in there. And then I worked with the community, the photographer community around the country, because there are many, you know, people that take more impressive photos than me. So I have a collection from outsiders that have contributed the photographs as well. Okay. And, you know, for anyone who's interested, the book is available to be purchased, right? It is available through the publication unit at the university online. I think even people on Shopee sell it as well as the Royal Foundation. Okay. All right. Excellent. So we can get our hands on that. And, you know, we must make a trip to Kenya very soon and come visit you guys as definitely, well. Definitely. <laughs> and are there any initiatives or projects that you're currently working on, you know, that combine both photography skills with uh, environmental conservation? One that I just finished is with WWF and FRIM, the Forest Research Institute. They wanted to look this past year at the Galam Forest, the mm, mm. typical brie habitat on the east coast which appears very barren very uninteresting and i myself had not done a lot of bird watching in that area because it is barren when you go in there you don't see that many species there are no roads in there it's just a sandy swampy area but i took this up with uh, wwf and frim and uh, i chose two sections of the forest one is in Marang in the center mm. south part, and the other one is in Situ. But I didn't go to Situ Wetlands, the state park. I went to this uh, Brie Forest, which is in the middle of nowhere. There are no roads. I had to drive off-road a few kilometers. I mean, real off-road few kilometers until there's no more road. And then I had to walk a few kilometers before I could get to the edge of the forest. And then walk in the forest. It's beautiful. No phone line there. 
no traffic noise because you're so far removed from any road. It's very uh, peaceful. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, although others have said the same thing, uh, you go to a habitat which you think is barren, but when you spend time there, oh, it's teeming with interesting things that have not been recorded. So um, it is, an, it is a, a very beautiful area. And now I'm working with uh, a good friend of mine, Alex Lee, who's very much into conservation in Tringanu. And we are trying to have a birding event in this type of habitat in situ nice. to, to share with the public some of the things uh, that are out there. Mm. And so uh, that's that's uh, something that I just, I just finished. Okay. And I, I was quite thrilled. I mean, I do like going back to that part of the forest now because it's so calming to be there. Okay. Anything that you can share about, you know, some of the discoveries you made there or that's not quite uh, Well, uh, there there are two things that come to mind. One is the lesser adjutant. Mm. Lesser adjutant is a large stork. On the west coast, you can find it in some numbers, but the east coast has very little record of it, okay. except Situ wetlands. And when I did a survey in Situ Probably close to 20, almost 20 years ago, yes, there was a small population of them there in the Gullum Swampy area. That area has been taken over by oil palm. Mm, okay. And so I always wondered, where do they move? Well, I think they've moved to this area that I surveyed, which is adjacent to it, because there are at least four that are out there. And if you know where to go, what time, you'll... You'll hopefully see them. Okay. They're ugly birds, but they're beautiful to me because they're they're large and they're yeah. very interesting and they're endangered. So that is one. And another thing, um, I don't just look at the birds as I walk through the the, the forest. I found uh, otters. At first, we could hear the otters. I didn't know what they were. I could just hear. And then four of them ran across in front of me. And I photographed them. Wow. And they're smaller than the usual otters we see. And when I start to investigate it, oh, this is hairy-nosed otter. And hairy-nosed otter is the least known otter in the world. And uh, Prahilatan didn't believe me at first. They said, oh, no, usually seen only singly. You've recorded four. Uh, but when they looked at the photos, they said, oh, yes, that's the hairy-nosed wow. otter. So we know that there are some rare things out there in this forest. And I guess that's part of this research is to contribute to this needs to be protected, this habitat. It's a dwindling habitat. Everyone thinks there's nothing there. We can just clear the forest and use it for other things. But in actual fact, it's very beautiful and there is valuable wildlife in there. That's so important, you know, as well, when we want to preserve whatever tracts of our forest left, right? Yes. yes? Yeah, because yes. as you mentioned, there are plantations, but this area also needs to be protected because that's where the, the wildlife have gone yes. to pretty much, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. And, okay, so so that's a lot there, uh, Anwar. I think we could talk for hours, and for, but we can't, unfortunately. But for you, you know, personally, how has your perspective on the natural world uh, changed, you know? And, and how, how, how has that influenced uh, your opinion on the importance of preserving it, uh, you know, through your work as a bird? photographer? Well, if we if we look at the loss of wildlife, the loss of habitat, we can get depressed. Yeah. And I don't want to be depressed. Mm -hmm. We can't ignore it, but we can work with like-minded people. We can spend more time outdoors ourselves, gain a greater appreciation and a greater understanding. We're always learning new things uh, about what's out there and share it with others and network with others that have similar interests. So I see in Malaysia, the Malaysian Nature Society used to be one of the main NGOs, you mm -hmm. might say 30, 40 years ago. But today, 
there are, it's not that it's irrelevant. No, there are so many other people that set up niche NGOs that do excellent work that shows us that there is a whole wealth of people and knowledge and networking that's going on. I just hope that this message, this wealth of people that are interconnected, they get to have their voice heard by those that can make decisions so that we can make the proper decisions. And we talked about victories. Yes, we have had some, the expansion of the Kinnear State Park. We're actually working on an expansion now, uh, asking for more area to be included. And uh, we hope that, that we can continue to have these successes Okay. And, you know, for, for in, anyone who's listening, right, you know, on an individual level, you know, what would your recommendations be uh, in terms of actions that we can take to support conservation? Um, yeah, you know, in any way possible, right? So for yours, it's photography, right? But we can do so many things. Am I right? Well, there's so many choices that you can make every day. Um, we, we are not there yet where you can choose an electric vehicle over uh, a gasoline burning vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, in other countries, yes, they can, they can make that choice. We cannot do that yet. But there are other things. There's those three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. Well, recycling is the last one. It's actually just throw things in a different garbage bin. Right. We should really look at uh, how we can reduce our consumption, how we can reduce packaging. You know, uh, there's too much packaging out there okay. of things. So we can do those. And we should also have a passion for the environment and outdoors. We, we need it to survive. We need the forest to survive. We need this web of life on our planet to survive. We have to be aware of it. And birding is just one way that you can gain entrance to that natural world. You know, birds are the easiest form of wildlife to see. Just mm -hmm. outside the studios here, we were talking, there are birds yeah. that you can see and they're wild birds. They're living in the environment. So I've always felt birds is a great way to get started. If someone doesn't have a connection uh, to the outdoors, birds is a good way. And that will slowly uh, play a role in your thinking because you'll be thinking about nature, the outdoors, the environment, and you will make decisions in your life that serve to protect nature and the outdoors. And Malaysia is a beautiful country with a lot of biodiversity, mm -hmm. and we have a responsibility here to protect it. Yeah. Just get a simple pair of binoculars first, right? And just start there and just look what's in your backyard first, you yes. know, Joy. Yeah, just yes. see what's in, in yeah. your area first. Like you said, you can be a lazy photographer. Oh, yes. You don't need to go far. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. you don't need to go far at all to get started. Yeah. Okay. Anwar, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Uh, any any last message or any concluding message that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, I'm, I've, I've been in Malaysia for 30 years. I think it's a fantastic place, and I see see more and more people being interested in conservation and protection of wildlife. Not everyone is, but many people are. It's growing. And so I just encourage everyone to get involved in protecting the outdoors in whatever little way they can. Enjoy the outdoors that we have here in Malaysia, uh, because we all have a role to play in uh, protecting what, what we have. Um, and folks would like to get in touch or, or stay in touch. Is there a way that they can do that? Well, I have a Facebook page that, funny enough, doesn't go by Anwar McAfee, my name. It uses Con McAfee, which is C-O-N. So you can always look up on the Facebook page, see what I'm posting, see the things that I'm sharing. Okay. 
All right. So that's uh, just look for Con and that's C-O-N McAfee. So that's M-C-A-F-E-E uh, on Facebook and we can uh, follow your work there. Uh, but if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.